Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone, to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm excited about a topic that a lot of people don't get excited about, and that's grief. My guest today is Claire B. Willis. She's a clinical social worker who's worked in the field of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. She's a co-founder of the Boston nonprofit Facing Cancer Together and regularly leads bereavement, end-of-life support, and therapeutic writing groups. As a lay Buddhist chaplain, she focuses on contemplative practices for end-of-life care, and she maintains a private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts. She's also the co-author of a new book called Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. Claire, welcome to We Earth Radio. Thank you for having me, Michael. I have paused there because I changed the name in the last year from conversations after 15 years of conversations. But I really want to emphasize in my interviews how connected we are, which is why it's We Earth Radio. And I think the most important thing we have to do these days is learn how to connect. And one of the things that's really challenging to connect with, obviously, is grief. So let's talk a little bit about how you see grief. How did you get into the, you've been doing this for so long, into the grief business, if you can call it that. (laughs) I I love that, the grief business. Um, I think I come to it both personally and professionally. And in my bereavement groups, I found that I was repeating the same thing over and over. People would say things like, how long will this grief last? Am I grieving right? How many, am I in the right stage? How am I gonna get through this year? And I found myself saying the same things over and over. And I finally thought, oh, I really wanna write about this. I wanna normalize grief and I wanna take the privatization of grief out of this because everybody grieves. Personally, I grew up in a family in which grief was not really tolerated. The way grief got expressed was through anger. And there was a lot of ungrieved grief in my family. And there was a lot of traumatic death. We had two suicides in my family. And so I, it just felt like, uh, it just has felt like work I've always wanted to do. So <clears throat> to answer your other question, how I think about grief, I ran across a quotation about grief that was written by a, a person named Jamie Anderson, whom I've been unable to find anything out about. But if I had seen this quotation when I was writing the book, it would have been all over the front cover. It's short. And basically, it's how I think about grief. And we write about it in this way in the book, but not quite as succinctly as Jamie has written. So I'm going to just read these couple of sentences here. Grief, I have learned, is really just love. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love, 
with no place to go. And one of the reasons I love this so much is that if we can reframe grief into an expression of love, it's not something we want to get over. It's not something we want to get through. It's not something we want to push down. And it, it takes grief, which has been pathologized, I think, in our culture, and makes it something beautiful. It reframes it and it opens it up to everybody in a way that you can't say no to love, mm. you know? Yeah. You know, you mentioned the two suicides. I'll just be transparent here. Both my parents were at Pearl Harbor and uh, my father was a fighter pilot and my mother was women's air force. And so I'm just looking at my own experience to just really deepen this conversation that they, they didn't get planes off the ground and, and neither of my parents really came out where they were open in, in any way. My father was frozen in time. I hardly ever saw him. My mother was in therapy for several years after my birth, which was right at that time, and then uh, ended up committing suicide also. And yet the way that the family dealt with that was, you know, I was two and a half. Your mother was sick and died, period. No no acknowledgement of anything, no showing of anything. And yet it's taken me many, many years to untangle the trauma of that. And I'm still very much, I'm, I'm in the trauma business, so to speak, of working with people with trauma. So that was a gift of it. But this, this unwillingness to meet and grieve, where, where does that come from? Where does what come from? Well, well, you know, in indigenous cultures in the past have have really they've danced, they've sang, they've expressed it, they've wailed. They there's still cultures that do that. They scream and shout. They really do physical movement in order to express the grief. But we have learned in the West, particularly somehow to compartmentalize it and to hold it inside. And I just wonder the genesis of that. I, I don't know that I can speak to that, but I can speculate about it. And I think that given the economic structure of our culture, we don't take time to grieve. It would reduce. I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I do believe this, that it would reduce our productivity. If you think about the fact, and we're so productively oriented, if you think about the fact that when someone dies in a family, someone gets three to five days off of work to grieve, that's, that's just the beginning. That's hardly the beginning of, of, of grief. And I think when we're grieving, we often have to choose whether we're going to cope or we're going to deal with the grief. And when we're coping with the grief, we, usually when someone first dies, we have to cope. We have to close the material aspects of their life. We have to plan the funeral. We have to notify people. We have, we have to get insurance policies straightened out. We have to do material things. And those things keep us from feeling. And when we're done coping, often we begin to deal or feel the emotional impact, and we can't heal what we don't feel. And so if we keep this pace of productivity up, then we're not going to deal with the grief that we're carrying. And we're living in a culture right now where 
grief has seeped into every aspect of our life if we've allowed it to. And I'm thinking about this article that David Brooks wrote um, about a year about a year ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and he asked his readers to let him know how they were dealing in the last two or three weeks. And in three days, he had 5,000 replies. And his summation was, there's a river of woe, a river of grief flowing through our culture. And I love the image of river because water goes everywhere. And we may not know we're grieving, but no one has been untouched by grief because our life will never be the way it was. We can't unknow what we know now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love that. You can't heal what you don't feel. And so many of us are numb. And, you know, there's the pandemic of COVID. There's also a pandemic of trauma that's unexpressed and unfelt, which directly relates to the inability to feel and to grieve when something's happened to us. And yet, you know, it consumes us and keeps us separate, which of course, when you're separate, which is often trauma, there's, there's no connection and therefore there's no compassion, no empathy, no um, being able to see the other person and experience them. So we're shut down, disembodied, and not able to feel our emotions. And we're in a world of crises, like, you know, not just this one, but climate change, economic disparity, uh, all these other crises are happening. I don't know how we can possibly address them without addressing grief. But, you know, one of the things that I just want to say, uh, this is reminding me that when you think, when people hear the word grief, they think sadness, sorrow, hopelessness. But when we talk about people being shut down from grief, often what we see as their expression of grief is anger, rage, irritability, impatience, um, regret guilt. It has a lot of expressions. And when we stay, the, the staying with anger and rage is a way not to feel our helplessness, to give, it gives us a false sense of agency and strength. You know, I can get through this, I'm going to suck it up sort of thing. And I, I think about our last president and how, never mind his politics, but how enraged he was all the time. And I would listen to him and I would say to myself, what happened to this man as a child that he cannot find an ounce of compassion or empathy for himself or others? It was really striking to watch that, you know, but so I think often with trauma, we can't access one another. We can't connect. And part of it is the, the, the terror of feeling that vulnerability again, mm-hmm. And the suffering, I, I believe that all suffering in the world is a product of separation, of the, of the lie of separation that we're separate. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we're talking about this grief, and there's a lot, a lot of other things to talk about, so probably get into some of the very more nuanced parts, but at the heart of it for me is we'll never be able to address the bigger issues until we can connect and we can't connect until we can uh, feel 
uh, like you say, you can't, you can't heal what you can't feel. So, and it's kind of like we've normalized grief and trauma, both. It's, it's like, uh, oh, grief, uh, you know, your husband's been dead for six months. When are you going to start dating? Uh, like there's a particular time period and a structure. And um, as in your book, you talk about the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief and how that was really meant for death. But we've applied that to, oh, yeah, you should do this and do that. Talk about that whole myth of how we see grief and how we. Uh, yeah, there are, there are a lot of models of grief floating around in our culture. And one of the most prevalent ones is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's models, five stages of grief, which were intended to be applied to people who were dying. But they've gotten they are so absorbed in our culture that they've gotten overlaid over people who are grieving. And what happens is in my bereavement groups is someone will say, I thought I was getting to acceptance. And then I was walking down the market, supermarket aisle and I saw a can of tuna fish and I remembered my partner loved tuna fish and I lost it. And I've been set back that these models, it's the grief does not ever move in a linear fashion. Now there are stages of grief that people often will go through, like they'll go through denial, they'll go through anger, they'll often bargain and they may not, and they may not. So it doesn't, it's not a sign or a measure of success if you're hitting all those, because not everybody's going to hit all of them. And some of us may not hit any of them. And so these models get overlaid and then we end up shaming ourselves and critiquing our process. And that just contributes to our suffering and our loneliness because grief doesn't have to be lonely. <laughs> it doesn't have to be lonely, um, but we've made it so because we have these ideas. And just to mention something, which I think is important, Michael, Often people will have these moments, for instance, what I just mentioned, they're walking down the supermarket aisle and they see a can of tuna and they burst out crying because they realize their partner loved tuna. And they, and I say to them, this is called STUG, a sudden temporary upsurge of grief. It's a very normal, common form of grieving. And you can be 15 years from grief from the loss of someone and have an evocative moment where you lose it and the whole catastrophe of that loss comes back. It's always sudden, it's always temporary and it disappears always within 24 hours. And grief has to come in waves because our psyche couldn't tolerate it if we were in a sustained period. So we can't absorb the whole magnitude of what we've lost in one sitting or two, it has to come and go and be tempered by joy and gratitude and other feelings that we may be carrying. Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest issues is the context of grief is that it's a problem. Yeah. And I love that you spoke about it. I love that you spoke about it as an expression of deep love, but that is not how we see it. It's like, I have to get through this. I have a problem. I have to get rid of this. Um, and having lost a lot of people in my life, you don't get rid of it. You don't. You never That's do. It. it changes. It changes in intensity, duration, and frequency over time. When you first lose something or someone, whether it's a pet or a person or your job or whatever, the, the pain is searing. It's all there is. And over time, 
it goes into a dull ache, but it doesn't disappear. And there's a beautiful analogy of grief being like a broken bone. You break it, it kills you at first, you get it reset, you maybe wear a cast, you go to PT, and then you're okay. But on rainy days, the ache of the break returns. Mm -hmm. And I love that because the ache of grief doesn't disappear, but it occurs with less intensity, frequency, and duration over time. Mm -hmm. We don't want our love to disappear for what we've lost. Yeah. Why would we want to stop loving who and what we've lost? I'm wondering about the physiological cost or impact of holding grief down. I know with trauma, pushing it down, it leads to a great many illnesses. I'm wondering about what, you know, my whole family held that grief down. It was not to be spoken of ever. Yeah, mine too, mine too. Um, I, I mean, I didn't see this per se in my, well, I think what happened in my family is it dampened their life force. It dampened their capacity for joy and their capacity for vitality. But we know that inhibiting grief creates stress and it increases anxiety and increases the likelihood of people experiencing depression. It, it suppresses the immune system. So it, it can't be good. Mm-hmm. It can't be good. One of the things... I also went through when my daughter was young, my wife was murdered. Oh my God. And one of the hardest things in that was dealing with other people. I I remember vividly, and this was 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago. Someone said, oh, how's Sonia? And I said, well, she was killed. And the response was, you're kidding. Now, that to me was like, you know, but I can see that it was a, a way that they couldn't take that in. That's right. But at the same time, that's often an issue when people, you know, if you can just be there and hold their hand or be with somebody, and I've been with other people grieving, they don't need you to fix anything because it's not something that's broken. Yeah. You know, um, Rachel Remen, do you know Rachel Remen's work? Yeah. Yeah. She has a great article called Helping, Fixing, Serving. She says, we don't need to help someone. We don't need to fix them. We just need to figure out how to be of service. Mm -hmm. And I hear all the time in my bereavement groups how people don't know what to say. And they're always afraid that they're going to upset you as if you're not thinking about the loss to begin with. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot is what are some helpful things to say to people? Yeah. I can only imagine how shocking that must have been for you to have someone say, you're kidding. I mean, it's just like, I don't even, yeah, I think it is their inability to take it in. Yeah. Well, and, and at the same time, attuning to another person's grief, seeing them seeing us seeing them, when we can attune to us, it actually helps us to develop our capacity to be with it, but also our capacity to be compassionate, I think. Yeah. You know, um, the first chapter in the book is called Starting with Kindness. Mm -hmm. And we start that very intentionally as a counterpoint to the models and how it should be. But if we can't be kind and tender towards our own grief, 
we can't tolerate the grief of other people. So this becomes a practice of being more deeply with ourselves, but it also will allow us to, to connect more deeply with other people. And that's important. Yeah, the words that come up for me when you say that is presence, yeah, compassion, and mutuality. What is that? How does that fit with you sitting with many, many people in hospice in many places? You know, what, what the other thing I would add is breath. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sitting with someone. It's very easy for me to go <gasps> inside. Mm -hmm. And keeping a soft front in my body is really important because that deepens my capacity to be present. Mm -hmm. When I harden my belly, I know I'm in trouble. And it's usually when I'm distressed by something I'm hearing or something that's getting evoked inside of me. So, but yes, I think, you know, I think being present to one another is the biggest gift we can give each other. And also inviting the other person to express whatever's there. So when someone dies, I would love to hear as much as you want to tell me about Mary and her life in what you're missing, just that, rather than she's in a better place, at least she's not suffering. Those trivial things that are said with well-meaning, but they don't invite mm -hmm. interaction or connection. They're really sealers, they seal the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking of my own experience with my wife a little bit and coming up for me. And of course it was a shocking grief, you know, it was just sudden. Um, and I remember sitting in the funeral parlor and this is probably because of my younger experiences and I couldn't cry. And I felt a lot of guilt or shame around the fact I was there for hours. I wanted to cry and I could not cry. And I was left feeling guilty about not being able to cry. Mm -hmm. and, but now I even talk about it. I can feel the tears are there, but there was a, a period where, you know, I had a four-year-old and I, you know, was dealing with all of those things. And now over the years, more and more, now I talk to her when I, and I go with, you know, what do I do with my daughter, our daughter? What am I going to do? You know, <laughs> talk, talk about shock and, and the progression a little bit and how you see that. Well, you know, what's interesting is that one of the expressions of grief is in the shock, numbness, the inability to feel. And, you know, my mother died uh, in 1992, and it wasn't for 16 years later that I was giving a talk at a local cemetery. Um, it was on an evening of remembrance for people who had lost people. And I pulled into the parking lot there and my mother has a bench there. And I realized it would have been her hundredth birthday. And I started to sob and I couldn't stop crying. So it's, you know, I think a lot of th this is about context. What was the context of the relationship? What was what was the way it happened? I mean, how could you not be anything but numb in the face of someone being killed? It's, it's, 
how could you take that? How can the psyche take that in? There's no way you could have been different. And what's sad is that you turned on yourself for not grieving in what you felt was a conventional way. And that is so common. It's so common. And that's what breaks my heart. It's part of why I wrote the book, to normalize whatever people are feeling so that they don't have a double source of suffering, the loss and then the the self-criticism of I'm not grieving right and everybody's judging me or shame or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It takes time. I was just thinking that as you just said, it, it takes time and it takes as much time as it takes. It doesn't take like six months or a year. I'm still grieving 40 years later, some of those things. Of course. You no, know, at that time. Um, yeah. So loving kindness towards yourself, metta towards yourself. But um, I know think that's the hardest thing is, is, the, is the kindness towards ourselves, both when we're grieving and with another person who's grieving. Well, I think that's a culture, you know, that's a cultural phenomenon because our culture doesn't support grief. I have people in my bereavement group, Michael, who will come in and be crying and then say, I'm sorry, I'm losing it. If you can't cry in a bereavement group openly, where can you cry? I mean, it just breaks my heart because here we are gathered together to talk about our loved ones and how to cope with the loss. And we're apologizing for tears. It's, it's so cultural. Other cultures don't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We've whitewashed death. Death becomes a failure in the medical profession. I've heard people say, I work with people with cancer, and I hear people say, I failed chemo. Can you imagine? Yeah. I failed chemo? It just breaks my heart. But that's the medical lingo for yeah. when someone doesn't get through it. Yeah, I'm wondering about things like cultural and bouncing around here a little bit, but it's just about cultural and also ancestral grief. I don't know how much you've thought about that. It wasn't in the book really, but you know, it's one thing, and I've thought about this often as an environmentalist, it's one thing to grieve the loss of a parent. And that has a certain magnitude, depending on who you are. It could be huge. How your relationship was conflicted will enter into that. All of, all of that mixed emotions when someone dies, there's all of that. And there's, there's and I know that's a whole piece that you, you'll want to talk about. But then there's also the loss of a child, which is another kind, to me, it's kind of another kind of grieving. But how do you grieve 200 species a day going extinct? Oh, God. You know, this is so interesting because this came up last week in my one of my groups. This woman had watched a WGBH special on the environmental crisis, which I started to watch and I was overwhelmed with grief and I was about to go to bed. And I said, I need to watch this in the morning. I can't watch this before I go to bed. But, you know, we wrote a blog about environmental grief. And one of the problems with 
the way we talk about it is that the language we use is very far removed from the reality of the level of extinction. Do you know what the word extinction is? It comes from putting out a flame. Mm. It comes from putting English, out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I wish if I'd known we were going to get into this, I would have pulled up the exact quote because it was really beautiful. I I, I heard something this morning about it, but actually, he, actually, I can pull it up. Here it is: the word extinct. It turns out derives from the Latin extinguishere to quench a flame, to quench a flame. You know, I. I think one of the ways to manage, the, well, as I started to say, our language around the environmental uh, uh, crisis is so technical that it removes us from it. Yeah. And there's a word in the book that we discovered when we were researching called solastalgia. Mm. And I, it's, a, it's a beautiful word as opposed to environmental crisis, which has a sort of distant scientific feel to it. Um, and it's it's the the loss of us a place that carried soul for us, and those places are getting extinguished a mile a minute as we speak. And I think that's one of the good things that COVID has exposed. It's exposed the the level of de devastation to our environment that allowed something like this to happen, and will allow this kind of thing to continue to happen. We're, this is the first pandemic. There are going to be more because the stop, the thing, the natural barriers to this have been broken. Yeah, well, think about the trees, the pine, pine uh, beetle, for instance. Um, you know, because of the climate change, just a little bit, uh, the larvae aren't staying frozen, and so. They're now more and more, and, and then we see all over Colorado and California, all the pine trees are dying. That's completely an environmental issue uh, from taking us out. We, we just reached 420 parts per million, uh, which was, is a horrible place uh, of, of um, carbon in the air. And um, that brings up for me that whole area of living in denial. Um, I've learned as an environmentalist that telling people all the facts does not do anything. In fact, it either, either you're talking to people who already think that way or it shuts people down. But from a grief perspective, how can we get people to, to feel that larger grief? I mean, I brought in the ancestral part because I think that we've got millions or hundreds of thousands of years of resilience that's built in through our ancestors. We have the capacity for resilience and for understanding these, but we've somehow shut that ability down by being disembodied, by not being able to feel our emotions, getting numb through trauma, all of these different things. I'm just, you know, I'm always curious about, yes, the issue here about grief, but what's the teaching and the learning and the possibility that's available by actually allowing us to stay a moment longer and feel that grief? Well, you, I don't have an answer to this, but 
one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking was how do we find the level in people that's tolerable, that they can take in and absorb the devastation without dissociating. Yes, yes. And, and, and that's, that's something there about being attuned with each other. How do we, so when we're talking to somebody, can we stay attuned enough to know whether we're reaching them? Mm-hmm. And I think part of what has numbed us down is what we see on TV and the news and movies. Our media has made us numb to disaster. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just, I mean, take this out of the environment for a minute and just look at the number of murders of African-American men in the last two weeks. It's to say it's ho-hum. It's like, it's not carrying the same shock value that it did at the beginning. It's just like, it's almost like, when is the next one until we do something? What's it going to take for us to say, this is unacceptable. We have to do something. And I think it's the same thing with the environment. I think one of the things that happened with COVID is that it really made people's suffering palpable because of how we destroyed. And I think we have to have it in our face in order to take action and realize we've got to do something. We've got to make sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I think there's something about attuning to people. How do you deliver information that is too much for the psyche Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a way, in measurable um, amounts? Yeah. Yeah. That uh, uh, the word attunement really resonates with me. Thomas, my teacher, Thomas Hubel, often has us uh, seeing ourselves, seeing the other, seeing us seeing them. And there's a kind of attunement that happens. It's like, Claire, you're over there. You're, You're on the screen, but you're also in Massachusetts. I'm in British Columbia. So in a sense, you're over there and I'm seeing you on a screen. And that's, but there's another sense that I'm seeing you, but where am I seeing you? I'm actually seeing you in my nervous system if I'm with you, because I can feel you. So you live over there maybe as a particle, but in me, you live as a wave of energy that has the confines in the narrative that uh, that lives me that says this is how much of Claire when I'm completely present with her, being with her, seeing her, seeing me see her, that is available to me. But in that connection with each other, there's something that grows. There's a bigger capacity to be with each other, to be with our grief, to be with our sorrow, and to be with these larger issues. So I'm really, when you say attunement, this is what it brings up for me is yes. It's creating a field. It creates a field, exactly. It creates a field. And the field that we're swimming in is a field of, of trauma and it keeps us separate. And it's it's not just this trauma, it's, it's ancestral. It's many, many generations of trauma And when we're traumatized, we can't be with somebody else because it's frozen energy. It's frozen time inside of us. And so 
grief to me occurs as an access to a healing of that frozen energy of the opportunity to have greater capacity to be with. If I can be with someone dying and sit by them, I've expanded my own capacity. If I can, if I can let the feelings and actually feel them, not in my head, but feel them in my body, you know, the emotions of fear and sadness and grief and anger and all of those things, I've created a greater capacity to attune with you or someone else. That's right. That's right. Yes. It's beautiful. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking about that you wrote in the book that I think is important is the idea of secondary loss. How do we meet and deal Uh, with, with that phenomenon? Oh, yeah. So secondary loss, when, when we lose somebody that we love, we lose the person. And in the literature, it's called primary loss. But when that person dies, there are a host of other losses that often accompany the loss of someone we love that are called secondary. But it's, it's unfortunate language because they're far from secondary in impact. And sometimes these losses can have a more primary impact on somebody than the loss of the person. So I want to just say that. So for instance, in my group the other night, a woman said, I miss my partner, but what I miss even more is being part of a partnership. I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. So some of the secondary losses, when let's just say your husband or your wife dies, you may lose a co-parent. You may lose a co-grandparent. You may lose the breadwinner. You may lose economic stability. You may lose your home. You may lose your job. Uh, maybe you were a caregiver full-time and all of a sudden you, you have no one to care for. Um, the loss that you, you, you may lose the person with whom you've dreamed your future. Uh, the, losses, the, the losses that accompany the death of a person are huge and change people's lives. And one of the things that changes a lot is the friends, friends disappear, new friends come and friends that we expect to be there disappear. And that's a really big loss for people because their community as they knew it changes. And sometimes that brings in positive change, but sometimes it brings in way more grief. Yeah. Yeah. I I really experienced that the people who stuck with me during during my the loss of my wife that were our friends and the ones that just kind of faded away, disappeared. Yeah. And another issue I think that's really important to talk about is the mixed emotions, particularly something like you talked about it in your book, Opening to Grief. Uh, let's say um, I've... Uh, been with someone caretaking for two years of cancer and then they die. I'm exhausted. I've given everything I can. I've spent our money. I've done all of that. Or somebody who has an accident and now is no longer the same person because they have decreased capacities. Talk about how to deal with that kind of situation. Well, you know, uh, you've got two situations there. One is making me think about ambiguous grief, where a person remains physically present in our life, but psychologically they've disappeared. And there's no way for the culture to really hold that. We don't have rituals for that. So that might be that you have a, a partner, say, who has dementia, or you have a child who has autism, or you have a child that slipped into addiction. 
And so their, their whole personality has changed. Those are, that's an ambiguous loss because the person is there, but psychologically they're different. They're gone in some way. It happens with a brain injury, or you could have someone who has, uh, who has physically disappeared, but is so psychologically there. So for instance, during COVID, people being hospitalized and not being able to visit them. I have a number of people, partners died in the hospital and they couldn't get in to see them. So the person is physically alive and you can't get access or inmates or situations with immigrants, estrangements in relationships, this often happens, or divorce. Uh, is another one. So the, the the person is 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 psychologically so with you, but not physically present in your life. Mm-hmm. And these are big losses for people. They're they're more of the nuanced losses that we have no rituals for containing and holding. And then there's the invisible losses like miscarriages, stillborns, infertility, uh, the loss of a limb, uh, the gradual diminishment of aging. These are, these are invisible losses that are happening all the time, but we don't name them. And so people suffer quietly by themselves with them. The loss of a pet is another disenfranchised loss. Pets can be incredibly important to people, as important as people who have children. And when a pet dies, people lose their breath. You know, and there's no way to really gather people. There's no cultural sanctions for gathering people and having a service or a time of remembrance or whatever it is. So I want to highlight that because pet loss is very big and it's a a very invisible grief that people carry a lot of shame for saying, oh, it wasn't a child, but it, it has the love of a child. It's pure, it's unconditional, and it's simple. Let me share an experience of that. So with all the early trauma that I, I mentioned, and I'm very open about it because I work with people with trauma. So I had gone through three or four mothers by the time I was six um, or uh, caregivers. And I got a dog and I loved this dog. And I would lay by, he would lay by my bed at night and I would pet him and I, I would, that's the only place I got any soothing or nurturing, you know, in that early stage. But, it, but when I'd go to school, he'd climb over the barbecue and follow me to school. So I came home and um, from school and my stepmother had tied him up and he climbed up on the barbecue and tried to jump. But when I came home, I found him hanging the same way I found my mother. 70 years or 65 years later, the same woman says, you didn't even cry when your dog died. Now, as, as an example of what a horrible person I am and why I should be cut out of the will, which she did. <laughs> and I was oh, devastated. And, and I want to say something about the healing. I've had several dogs since. Now at night, I have an Australian shepherd named Buddha, <laughs> interestingly enough, that lies by, and, and I have healed that trauma. I have healed that trauma by when I go to bed at night and when I wake up in the morning, I soothe myself and it's been an incredible healing, but it took me decades, many decades to, to deal with 
the shock of that and the fact that somebody could not see that I was actually in shock, you know? Well, not only didn't see, but judged the shock in a critical way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. So pets are, uh, I just want to underscore how important pets are and how, how much you can, you, you can, it, it impacts you when you lose them, but also how much pets can be healing and, uh, and heal some kind of trauma like that and any kind of trauma really, yeah. uh, because they don't ask, they don't say stupid things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They're just there. They don't say hurtful things. And, yeah. you know, um, I, I lost, I want to say that, that one of the things that I say in my bereavement groups, it's really important and I want to say it here to Michael is that grief is a no compare zone that loss is loss and whatever your loss is, it fills you up. And I lost uh, my dog uh, last March 1st. I had to put him down and he had nasal cancer and I had no idea that 10 days later we'd be in a lockdown. <laughs> and I had so wanted to have a gathering of people to uh, spread his ashes because a lot of my friends loved this dog and I couldn't bring myself to do it because of the fact that it was COVID and this, there was so much suffering in the world. And I diminished my own because of what was happening. And even though this is my field and I talk about this, it was very hard to apply some of this to myself. Mm. Not to say, oh, come on, Claire, it's a dog. There are people who don't have food right now. People are getting, dying, not being able to breathe, you know. Anyway, so it's, it's very hard not to compare our grief, but whatever our grief is, it fills us up. And it's just as important as the next person. It's just different. It's yeah. just different. Let's talk about support. Um, you know, you're doing grieving groups. I, I have a grief exercise that I learned and I forgot the woman's name. Actually, it's a 21 day. You, you, you literally, you know, get down on your hands and knees and grieve and bring it forward. I found that to be very useful uh, to me. But talk about some of the different ways that that people can uh, connect in times of grief in a way that's healthy and um, and what's available for people. Well, I think um, it, it's it. What's going to help one person is not going to help the next. And okay. so, in, in the chapter in the book, um, opening to grief that we've just written, we offer a, different chapters to help people find the thing that's going to help them hold and and move with and live with their grief and their sorrow. So one of the things that we talk about is, which I think everybody is pretty universal, is restoring in, in the natural world. When we're in nature, we see the life death rejuvenation cycle. It can give us hope. Um, it also, the natural world asks nothing of us. It's just a place to rest our minds, our bodies, our eyes, our hearts. And um, so, that can be very healing for us. Um, Stephen and Rachel Kaplan talk about restorative environments, environments that we can go into as simple as a pocket park in the city or your backyard, or even looking out the window uh, if you're confined to the indoors, but getting outside can be really helpful. That's one thing. I find that the bereavement groups that we run 
incredibly healing for people because people can finish one another's sentences. One person says what they're going through. Another person says, oh, yes, me too. One person says I'm sleeping with my wife's um, shirts because I, I miss her scent. And someone says, yes, me too. Someone says I'm sleeping with my dog's favorite toy of 14 years. Yes, me too. So the loneliness, the privatization of pain is reduced in a, a bereavement group. Having said that, a bereavement group is not for everybody. Not everybody is going to find comfort in a bereavement group, um, although a lot of them are online. Um, another way to make meaning out of it is, is writing as a source of refuge. You know, we know now that when we write from an unencumbered place in ourselves, that we actually can de decrease our anxiety, our depression, and inc increase the functioning of our immune system. And James Pennybaker has done a lot of research about that. Um, making things through art is another way of using images that come to mind or using fabrics or colors that connect you to the, your loved one. It, it, it's different than speaking, it's different than writing because it uses the other side of the brain. And for some people, imagistically is, is more how they can connect to their loss. Um, cultivating gratitude, which probably sounds a little bit hooey when you're grieving, but I wanna say that trying to notice in equal measure to what's right, to what's wrong, helps us carry what's wrong. So we don't cultivate a gratitude practice for the sake of being grateful and brushing over what's wrong. We cultivate it to strengthen ourselves, to carry our sorrow. And I wanna emphasize that because we don't do gratitude at the expense of sorrow. We do it alongside of it. And there's a lot of research about the benefits of keeping a gratitude journal. When we have a bad experience occur to us, it hits us like Velcro. We don't, we don't ever forget it. We may forget the details, but we don't forget the impact. Positive experiences flow through us like water over Teflon. They don't stick. So by noticing and lingering with what's right for 20 to 30 seconds, when it is right, we start to strengthen our ability to hold the sorrow. So if you go out and it's a spring day and you see a gorgeous tulip, don't just walk by, stay and take it in for 20 seconds. And you actually begin to rewire your brain so that it's less habituated towards what's wrong than what's right. And we can therefore learn to, to carry our sorrow and our grief much more easily. So those are some of the ways in our book that we yeah. write about it. Yeah, Med mindfulness and meditation are really important because yeah. when we're grieving, it's very easy to catastrophize as we look forward. It's easy to ruminate as we look back. And what we need to do is to start to discipline our mind to stay more in the present. And so we use this practice of meta meditation, which is also called loving kindness or tender friend, which I love. And it's basically repeating to ourselves phrases that are comforting and uh, positive to ourselves. So uh, just some of the, um, the uh, just the meditation from the first chapter, which I'll just read to you, which I think is lovely, is may I welcome all my feelings as I grieve. May I allow grief to soften and strengthen my heart. May I hold my sorrow and tenderness and compassion.
So may I hold my sorrow with tenderness and compassion. So these kinds of affirmations, which are um, positive, can help strengthen us too and keep us from obsessing and ruminating in ways that aren't going to help us with our grief at all. So those are just some of the yeah, some a, of the ways from the books. Yeah, those are beautiful. As you were saying that, I was thinking about how we've pathologized death. <laughs> and how much the system of death is a bad thing that we need to keep things, you know, someone alive. doesn't matter about their quality of life. It's just keep them alive, keep them alive. And so we've gotten to see death as something really negative rather than an important part of life. It gives us a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And one of the things you talked about in the book was the negativity bias and, and how um, we, we so often hold these, these things that we're griefing as horrible, bad things that happened. And to balance that with the memories, for instance, of like my wife, all the amazing things that we time that we did have together, or, uh, uh, just the positive things, like you said, the, you know, the plant or being in nature, but to find that balance and recognize the tendency to make, you know, just to go back to the very first thing you said about love, you know, to, to recognize that grief is a, is a loving process and it opens, it can open us like a flower. Um, talk about that a little bit as we come to a close here. Uh, talk about which, the death piece? Well, the balance between uh, this is a, you know, first of all, the, the pathologizing it and then the, making it something negative, but also balancing that with the positive things that we had, that we have, and that we will have. Well, look, I want to just share a, a quick anecdote with you about this idea, what you were just saying about death, which is a very moving thing. A friend of mine who is a gerontologist went on a medical mission to Nepal to deliver medical supplies to people who were in remote places. She was with a team of about 40 people. She had a Nepalese translator with her. They were walking along the side of a cliff. She fell off the cliff into a raging river 50 feet below. The Nepalese translator jumped in afterwards to try and save her and died trying to save her. And then a Canadian jumped in and was able to save her. The Nepalese people on the trip said, oh, he had a karmic debt to her. He paid it. The Americans said, what a tragedy. And this story is so much about how we have no container for holding death that isn't negative and shocking. And uh, I, I don't even know, language falls short, but the, the two different cultures witnessing the same event and holding them so differently. And even the Nepalese mother, the, the Nepalese translator's mother said to the woman that he tried to save my son paid his karmic debt to you. Now it's yours to carry his spirit. It was a very beautiful transaction. So I think that, but just coming to this, to closing now, and how do we hold, how do we hold what's, new against what's old? How do we carry the love that we had for what we lost? And how do we transform it either in the form of a legacy or doing work 
that carries the spirit of that person. There are many ways to keep alive someone who died without having it be just loss and sorrow. But it can we can bring a new life into the world if we can start to welcome the life we have and see what we can generate from the loss to bring forward. I had a man come meet me yesterday to make a donation to my organization because he had loved a person he'd known 48 years ago who he had recently found out died. And he said, that woman penetrated my loneliness when I was 23 in a way that no one had ever been able to. And he said, I think about her every day. And I said to him, now it's yours to go carry and penetrate someone else's because you learned something from her that it's yours to carry the spirit of her Mm. now and do the same for somebody else. Mm. And I think that's how I think about these losses. How can we carry these people in ways that make the world more benevolent, loving place to be? Mm. So beautiful. Claire B. Willis, it's such a delight and an honor to be with you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and just for who you are exudes that that gift of having been through grief and been with others through grief. So thank you for taking the time to be on We Earth Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's been just a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.